Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Why does God allow us to suffer? This question, perhaps more than any other over the last 2,000 years, has dominated the minds and the pages of both Christianity's severest opponents as well as her staunchest apologists. Many of the answers to this question, also known as theodicies, have been offered over the centuries to this so-called problem of evil and suffering, but most of these theodicies appeal to suffering's inevitability in light of God's pursuit of some greater good. Alvin Plantinga identified this greater good as free will. He said that God's creating a world in which we humans have free will logically requires the possibility of suffering as a result of sin. Thomas Aquinas identified this greater good as heaven. He said God allows suffering in order to judge and grant everlasting heaven <clears throat> or hell based on human moral actions and human suffering. And God allows us to suffer some in this life to make the joys of heaven taste even sweeter. Gregory Gansel argues that we are not able to identify God's greater good in allowing suffering. We must simply accept it on the basis of faith alone. But most relevant for our purposes this morning was the early church father Irenaeus, who argued that God allows suffering in order to help us grow. This is the so-called soul-building theodicy. God is building our souls. God's aim in life is not to maximize our pleasure and so therefore keep us from any pain, but rather to maximize our progress and what helps us grow more than suffering, than hardships, than trials. I hate this new microphone, by the way. We've got to get a new microphone. <laughs> this is our backup. Something happened to our other one. <clears throat> um, what helps us grow more than suffering, hardship? You know, you've got you to break a, f- a few muscles down when you're weightlifting in order to build them back stronger. God's word certainly endorses this kind of explanation of suffering. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. For in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Or Romans 5, 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. It grows us, builds our character, our souls. Or James 1, 2 and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness may have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we could go on and on, so many passages throughout Scripture, but one final one which inspired this morning's sermon title, Trial by Fire, is 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. You have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so suffering and trials, we discover in Scripture, are God's refining fire, which he uses to burn away the dross of our unbelief. He did it with his people Israel in the Old Testament. God said, behold, I have refined you, he declared through his prophet Isaiah, but not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So sometimes we have to be brought to our knees so that the only place we have to look left for help is the place we should have been looking all along. It's up to our Heavenly Father. And a refined, purified faith is especially important for those who would lead God's people. And that's the main idea of our passage this morning, Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31, is that we are prepared for ministry through trials. We're prepared for ministry through trials. Why does God allow us to suffer? Well, in part, it's because he wants to use us as his instruments of his love and his grace to reach those who don't yet know him, and yet the sharpest instruments are the ones who have been through the hottest fire, who have endured the toughest beatings with the blacksmith's hammer in order to, to form us and forge us and shape us into those sharp instruments that he can use for ministry. And we see this in spades in the early life and ministry of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, if you've been with us for at least a few weeks now here at West Hills, we met Saul back in Acts chapter 7 and 8 when he approved of the execution of Stephen, first Christian martyr for his faith in Christ. But last week, in the first half of chapter 9 here, while he was en route to Damascus to persecute Christians, expand his persecution, everything changed for Saul in a moment when he had a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And he was born again. Death to life. Paul, uh, Saul was once blind, now he sees spiritually. And almost overnight, the number one persecutor of the church will become her number one proponent and number one proselytizer. But as we will see this morning in verses 19 through 31 here, though faith in Christ secures for us eternal life, life to the fullest that transcends uh, the suffering of the here and now, at the same time, belonging to Jesus in no way insulates us as believers from trials and sufferings in this life, in the here and now. In fact, Jesus promised just the opposite to all who would follow him. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You'll have troubles. And in last week's passage, Jesus promised the same specifically to Saul. He said, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine, verses 15 and 16, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. No one was more tested and afflicted throughout his life, for Jesus especially, than Saul. And yet, not coincidentally, not unrelated, no one was more powerfully used by God as his instrument, as a witness and a minister of the gospel than Saul, Paul. Paul suffered 
in order that he might become the very sharpest instrument that God had in his toolbox to go reach the lost. And so this morning, before Saul even gets started in that work, in the ministry to which God is going to call him, before he even gets started, God is going to test him to try him in three different ways in order to prepare Saul for three different areas of ministry. And they just so happen to be the same three areas of ministry that we have identified here at West Hills as our driving purpose for existing as a church. This is our mission statement. And so as always, that's just an extra excuse to read ourselves into this passage and into Saul's example this morning. That's what we're going to do. And so I invite you to stand now as you're able with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be, as I said, in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 31. Again, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Words will be on the screen up front. But if you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to give you one. And so we've got extra Bibles at the info bar, and take one. It's our gift to you. Hear the word of the Lord. For some days he, Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus after his conversion. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him too. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again this morning for your word. And now I ask, would the Spirit of God come and minister to the people of God through the word of God all for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Like Saul, we too are prepared for ministry through trials in three ways. Number one, we are prepared for discipleship through solitude. This seems counterintuitive, so let's examine it together. Saul had been converted. He was saved back in verse 8. 
on the Damascus Road when Jesus appeared to him and opened his spiritual eyes. Saul finally surrenders in faith, but he didn't regain his physical sight until three days later in Damascus when a brother named Ananias came and he prayed for the scales to fall off of Saul's eyes and for Saul to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Ananias baptized him and he fed Saul and apparently he continued to take care of him and house him and provide for Saul for some days according to verse 19b. We don't know exactly how long but what we do know is that the synagogue leaders in Damascus had to have been pretty upset because here they were. They brought him all the way 150 miles north to Damascus to help eradicate this Jesus problem but instead here he is exacerbating it. Immediately, we hear, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. You know, they, they, they parade him up there for the pep rally. Let's all go kill some Christians. And the first words out of his mouth are, Jesus is the Son of God. And he confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He proved it. I mean, you know, we got to accept it on faith these days. I mean, they, they knew he, he came back from the day. They were just trying to deny it. So he proved that Jesus was the Christ. It's a good thing that disciples living in Damascus received him because Saul had burnt all of his bridges with these Jewish leaders overnight. Again, instantly. These connections that he had spent a lifetime developing. Saul had been a good Pharisee. He'd been raised, uh, rising up through the ranks. It's all very political, but he, he had a good religious pedigree. He'd been discipled by the highly respected rabbi, Gamaliel. But at the moment that he got saved, old is gone, new has come. He, he says, I, I throwing away my entire life. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, I just want to know Jesus. But, to paraphrase Paul himself from Romans chapter 10, how can Saul know Jesus without someone to teach him? And so now, Saul's a, a new infant baby Christian. He's ready to be retrained, re-discipled, trained not in, under the Old Testament law, but in the new covenant in how to follow Jesus. Saul has, again, been raised all his religious life to believe this is how it works. It's all about who you know. Who'd you train under? That, that was the most common, important question in those days for, for a Pharisee. So who's your rabbi? Who'd you train under? And so, again, as a newborn infant Christian now, I imagine Saul latching on to Ananias. I mean, if somebody prayed for you and you were physically healed, regained your, your sight, you were blind, and now you can see. Somebody prayed for you, and now you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I mean, wouldn't you want to follow that person too? I shared a couple of uh, weeks ago with y'all my own personal conversion story after a friend had shared the gospel with me. Well, that was just the start of it, because I latched on, and I begged him, disciple me, and we spent the next year and a half together working through Scripture and praying together every, every week for hours. That's typically how we think about discipleship. That's how discipleship works, isn't it? Which makes what we read next in verse 23 all the more conf confounding to us. Verse 23 says, when many days had passed. Now, how many days? 
And what was Paul doing during all these many days? Well, to fill in the gaps in, Paul, in Saul's timeline, I keep wanting to call him Paul, spoiler alert, he's going to become Paul later. So just, you know, if I say Paul, you know, Saul. Uh, how, what, was, what was he doing? To fill in the gaps here, we've got to go to chapter 1 of later Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, where we read this, Galatians chapter 1. Uh, verses 11 through 19. Sorry, I meant to put a slide up there for you. Hopefully you got your Bibles. You can flip there. I would have you know, brothers, Paul says, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life of Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal to me his son in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, here it is, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and I returned again to Damascus, and then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's the apostle Peter, and I remained with him, everybody in the Bible's got two names, Uh, and I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So Paul is commending here his own apostolic authority and credentials to the Galatians by informing them that, hey, I wasn't discipled by anyone, at least not any mere mortal. No, Saul received the gospel directly from Jesus himself. And not just that. But after his conversion, he says, I didn't even immediately consult with anyone then either. He stayed just a few days with Ananias in Damascus, just long enough to to witness and and make the Jewish leaders mad and the synagogues in Damascus. They can run him out of town. And so pretty quickly, God sends him out to Arabia. Here's a map. I've got a map for you again. Jerusalem in the south, uh, Damascus 150 miles north. Again, he's there for some days, just a few days in in Damascus with Ananias uh, and and preaching in the synagogues. And then uh, pretty soon he's sent out to Arabia, the desert east of town. And then again, after we don't know exactly uh, the the timeline here where um, verse 23 picks back up and it says when many days had passed, we know it's three years to be exact. We don't know how long of those three years Saul was out in the wilderness versus, you know, was he there for three months? And then he came back and was in, uh, back in Damascus for, you know, three years minus three months. Or was he out in, in the wilderness for the full three years? We don't know. But what we do know is that for some period of time there, substantial enough for, for Saul to mention it, God sent him to the desert. Now, commentators uh, have different theories. They speculate on why. Some think that this was perhaps Saul's first missionary assignment. He was sent out to evangelize, preach the gospel to the Arabians. Not a lot of folks out there, though. 
and there's also no records of any new converts or new churches starting out in the, in the wilderness. I think the better explanation is that God sent Saul there to prepare him for his later ministry by way of solitude, seclusion, aloneness with God. That would certainly fit the biblical pattern of God's calling of his people to ministry. Consider the example of Moses, arguably the most important figure in the whole Old Testament. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's palace, but do you remember how he spent the next 40 years of his life? 40 years preparing to lead God's people. Where? It was in the desert, the wilderness, Midian. He lived a quiet life out in the desert. And after a quick trip back to Egypt, just long enough to free the Israelites from slavery, where did Moses spend the last 40 years of his life? Back in the desert. Different desert, this time the Sinai Desert, the same one that uh, Saul was sent to, preparing God's people to enter the promised land. This is a recurring biblical motif, the, the wilderness, the desert. So refining, preparation for what's to come. Or consider Jesus. What was the very first thing that Jesus did after being baptized, before he began his own three-year ministry? The Gospels say the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness for 40 days. Same wilderness as Saul, same desert as Moses. Why? Same reason, too. To be tested, to be tried trial by fire, to be trained by God himself. Now, the Israelites failed their test. They moaned and groaned for all 40 years of their suffering, and so God allowed an entire generation of them to be forbidden from entering the promised land. Jesus, of course, the opposite end of extremes, aced his test. God even allowed Satan himself to perform Jesus' temptation. He was no match for, for Jesus. And Saul was somewhere in the middle. While we don't get any of the details of Saul's testing here, his training for ministry, what we do know is he must have passed the test because he would prove to be used so powerfully throughout decades of, of ministry. And I, the question I want us to consider this morning with point number one is simply this. How much of Saul's impressive ministry did he owe to this time that he spent probably mostly alone, alone with God, being prepared for the work of ministry out in the desert. You know, I may have my Master of Divinity degree, but Saul earned his Master of Desert degree for three years. How formative were those three months, those three years in solitude out there in Arabia? Solitude can be trying, can't it? Aloneness, seclusion. It's perhaps the most overlooked of all the spiritual disciplines. Indeed, it's one of the least recognized as even being a spiritual discipline. One of my favorite books on the spiritual disciplines, Habits of Grace. Uh, author David Mathis says this about solitude. He says, it's surprising how loud silence can be. Getting away from time to time has always been a human necessity, but it's all the more pressing in modern life. By all accounts, things are more crowded and noisier than they've ever been. But most of us are addicted to the noise, aren't we? 
I mean, give us 15 minutes of a commute and we will instinctively flip on the radio to fill the void, fill the silence. Give us 15 seconds for the shower to warm up. What do we do? We reach for our phones. Right? I've got to scroll the news feed, check, check the social media feed. We have all but eliminated downtime from our lives. Pauses, breaks, quiet. But there's a reason that we in the church refer to the time that we spend in God's Word and in prayer as what? Quiet time, right? Because that's what it is. And that's what we need. That's what our souls so desperately need. Even Jesus himself needed that kind of quiet time. Frequently throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus retreating by himself to desolate places in order to pray alone. And he invites his disciples to do the same. Mark 6, 31. He said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And so too, when it comes to our own daily discipleship, there is simply no substitute for sustained times of solitude and rest with God. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no benefit to being mentored, to being discipled by other believers, fellow Christians more spiritually mature than you. I'm not saying go quit your, your D group, go quit your life group this week. I'm just saying that it is no replacement for your own personal time spent alone with the Lord. We know this. We know this experientially, don't we? In the Psalms, God invites us. He instructs us to what? Be still and know that I am God. There's a causative relationship between the two, isn't there? Between being still and knowing that he's God. I don't know about you, the days when I am busiest, when I roll out of bed and I hit the ground running with barely enough time to stop and, and eat or breathe, much less pray or, or open God's word, it is easy to forget that he is God on those days. To feel like I'm God. I got to do, 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 right? So he invites us to be still and know that I am God. Discipleship isn't a program. Discipleship isn't a curriculum. Our growth in Christ-likeness as disciples only comes as a result of our spending regular time, quiet time with Christ in his word and in prayer. Number two, we are prepared for missions through rejection. Again, seems counterintuitive, but look back at verses 23 through 25 with me. We hear when many days had passed, three years to be exact, Saul is back in Damascus now after his spiritual retreat in Arabia. The Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates to kill him, but his disciples, Saul's disciples, took him by the night, and they let him down through an opening in a basket. Now, it's interesting, even though Saul himself was discipled by no one, here he is, he's apparently been back in Damascus long enough now to have won some converts and actually begin to disciple them. Uh, but not everyone is excited about this ministry. Some of these, again, Damascus Jews who had been perplexed three years ago by Saul's conversion are now just downright perturbed by it. They have had enough of him disturbing their synagogue services uh, to preach Jesus, and they have presumably told him to stop it, cut it out, just as the Jewish leaders did in Jerusalem 
with the other apostles back in chapter 4 of Acts, but Saul has presumably replied, just as Peter and John did back in chapter 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for I cannot but speak of what I have seen and heard. I imagine that was Saul's response. And so now they're at an impasse. Saul won't stop proclaiming the gospel. The Jews won't stand for it any longer. And so what do they do? They resolve to kill him. This is the once famous assassin of Christians is now become the Christian target of his own assassination plot against him. Once again, though, Saul is just following in the footsteps of other notable godly yet rejected missionaries throughout biblical history. We, we need look no further than the two examples we've already mentioned, Moses and Jesus. God sent Moses to talk some sense into the Egyptians. Let my people go, but Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would hear none of it. Rejected Moses in God's way. Jesus was sent to his own people, the lost sheep of the houses of Israel, and even they rejected him. And now Saul, too, is rejected by his own people, by the Jews in Damascus. But it's not him that they're truly rejecting. It's nothing personal. right? You, you might remember God reassuring the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament when the Israelites demanded a king to rule over them like all the other nations. God said, Samuel, it's not you that they're rejecting. It's me they're rejecting as king over them. I imagine the Lord reassuring, comforting, reminding Saul of the same thing here. Saul, it's not you that they hate. I don't know if it was a lot of consolation or not. It's not you they really want to kill. They want to kill me. Just like you used to, by the way, three years ago. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not just the church, but me. Christ identifies with his church. They're rejecting me, Jesus. But here's the question. How could God possibly use such rejection to actually prepare Saul for ministry? Well, let me offer you three suggestions. First, perhaps God used this rejection to teach Saul, to teach him. You know, we say, I'm a coach, and they say in the coaching world that you learn more from the losses than you do from the wins. Saul wasn't perfect. He didn't evangelize perfectly. This text doesn't tell us this. I'm just speculating, but it's at least possible that part of the reason that these Damascan Jews rejected Saul could have been that he needed to learn a thing or two about how to most effectively share the gospel. Later in his ministry, Paul will, will tell us that I have learned to become all things to all people that by all means I might save a few. Now, we'll even see, start to see that in Paul's gospel presentations throughout the later chapters of Acts. He's going to witness differently to uh, the, the Jews in Jerusalem than he does to the pagan philosophers in Athens than he does to the ruling officials in Rome. But for all we know, this could have been a lesson that Saul had to learn the hard way. You know, maybe he had, to, he had to tick a few people off by being too bold. Maybe he's yelling at them, why don't you repent? You know, he's out there with his megaphone on the street going, we don't know, you know, in order to prepare him for ministry. Second, perhaps God used this rejection to impassion Saul, to kindle the flames of fervor in Saul's heart for seeing souls won for Christ. Just as we learn more from the losses 
than we do from the winds, the losses also have a heightened way of motivating us, of inspiring us to get back in the gym and train even harder so the next time we can bring home the W. There's another saying in coaching that it's really hard to beat a good team twice because that loss will usually serve as a good kick in the pants that they need to get back and and train harder, to work on their mistakes, correct it, and avenge the loss so they can come back with redoubled effort in the next game. Conversely, the wins can sometimes tend to make us more complacent. Complacent. And that's reason number three here. Most significantly, God uses Saul's rejection here to prepare him for ministry by humbling him. By humbling him. By showing Saul that if he was going to be successful at all in the task to which God was calling him, this otherwise impossible task of reaching hostile rebels opposed to Christ with the good news of the gospel, this impossible task of seeing them converted, radically changed, transformed, lost to found, death to life, spiritually blind, now they can see if that's going to happen for the people Saul is ministering to, it won't be anything that Saul does. It's got to come from God. And so Saul's rejection here served to keep him humbly reliant, not on his own strength, his own power, his giftedness, intellect, theology, rhetoric, charisma, his relationships, his winsomeness, his attractiveness, his, his smelling like the aroma of Christ. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't resting on any of that, but solely resting on the power of God. Paul would later write, what we proclaim to you is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God. What about us? Do we allow what might seem to be missional failures when we we try and reach out to our own lost loved ones with the love of Christ only to be rejected? Who rejects love? Turns out a lot of people do. Right? Do we let those seeming failures, though, deter us from ministering to them, or does it make us all the more determined to keep praying for them, to keep reaching out to them, impassioned? Does it make us even more humbly reliant on the Lord, who alone can do that work that, that most ultimately needs to be done, Changing a leper spots. I can't do that. You can't do that. Melting a heart of stone. I can't, we can't do that. Only God can do that. Does it drive us to him, to more desperate reliance on him, his power, his spirit, his word to do the work? Do we let Easter, you know, I don't know if we updated you on this in the, the weekly newsletter this past week, but we had 473 people join us for Easter last Sunday. Praise God. That's by far more, more people on a Sunday than I've ever heard of uh, attending West Hills. Over 150 visitors, many of whom I know for a fact. We know, y'all told us, the, the backstory. They're not believers. They needed to hear the gospel. But here's the thing. Not a single one of them came up to me in the foyer afterward. The elders 
up front afterward to pray with us, to, to, to tell us with tears in their eyes about their newfound faith, surrender to Jesus, new life in Christ that they experienced as a result of the preaching, the word, the prayer. Does, do we consider that a failure as a church? Do we let that deflate us? Or does it motivate us to pray all the harder to see those seeds of the gospel that were sown, that were planted, begin to take root in the soil of those people's hearts? And one day, we trust and pray, grow into full faith in God's own good timing, in His timing, not ours. You know, I've had a number of former students of mine from Culver, the boarding school I worked at, as a youth pastor for years. I've had a number of them reach out to me years later now as adults to let me know that they gave their lives to Jesus. And these were students in, in a lot of other cases where I ministered to them for years. I prayed for them faithfully for years, despite the fact that in some of their cases, they were the last students you would ever expect to surrender to Jesus. And if I'm honest, though, with, with a lot of those same cases, these students, it had been years, when I, by the time I heard back from them, it had been years since I had stopped to even think about them, much less pray for them. You know, we picked up life. We came here to St. Louis. We got plenty of other people to pray for. And yet, I had forgotten them, but God hadn't. I'd, I'd forgotten even that conversation that you told me meant so much to you 10 years. I'd forgotten, but God didn't. And sometimes I wonder, why did God let me not, why didn't he let me see the fruit of, of that ministry, of my ministry, of my prayers, of my efforts on their behalf 10 years ago? But here's the thing, I don't have to wonder very long because I know the answer, because it's not about me. It's not about my ministry. It's not about my prayers, my effort. It's about him getting the glory. It's about God, the all-surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. He gets the glory from saving sinners. And sometimes God will even save us from being tempted to steal that glory for ourselves by intentionally letting us be rejected for a season. God was preparing Saul here to rely not on his own strength in ministry, but on the power of Christ at work within and through him, such that Paul would be able to write years later, 2 Corinthians 12, I will boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, so that I might boast in Christ's power through me, in spite of me, in spite of my weaknesses. May we, too, likewise boast in our weakness and in our rejection. Number three, finally this morning, we are prepared for community through exclusion. This is the most paradoxical of all. The most paradoxical preparation. We're prepared for community through exclusion. We read it in verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was truly a disciple. Imagine how Saul must have felt. And he's already spent three years alone out in the desert. Then he returned to Damascus only to be forced to flee for his life under cover of the night. Now he's a fugitive living on the lamb. 
I'm, I'm, I'm sure news spread quickly through the synagogues in the area about this, this traitor, this betrayer, Saul. He's not welcomed in the synagogues anymore, to say the least. And yet the church is still skeptical of him too. They have not yet forgotten his anti-Christian crusades three years ago. They haven't yet forgotten their deceased loved ones who were drug off, systematically executed by Saul. But Saul has got nowhere else to turn, and so he decides to take his chances with the disciples down in Jerusalem, and so he flees there only to be met with suspicion and fear and exclusion. Just like Moses, who endured an attempted mutinous coup d'etat, just on the heels of leading the Israelites out of Exodus, Moses frees God's people, and how do they thank him? They try and overthrow him and excommunicate him. We'll take it from here. Just like Jesus, who was rejected not only by his own people, but by his closest followers, he was betrayed by Judas, he was denied by Peter three times, and he was abandoned by all 12 of them at the foot of the cross. And now Saul, too, is excluded from the very community that God has designed the church to be the most radically inclusive, life-giving community of all. Why? Why does God let him be excluded? I'll give you, again, three quick reasons. Number one, so that Paul can one day appreciate the importance of an accepting, supportive community all the more. You know, they say, you don't know what you got till it's gone. You, you, you don't appreciate something that you don't, until you don't have it anymore, Saul must have valued, you know, he belonged. He was in the upper ranks within Judaism. He belonged. Right? Now all of a sudden, he's got no sense of belonging. Nowhere to turn. No home. No acceptance. And so Saul must have come to value, you know, all the things that Paul will write about throughout the New Testament about the church and the beauty of the church. They're, they're born out of this right here his value of the church more than anyone because he knew what it was to, to need fellow believers so desperately for survival, for community, for hope, for encouragement and support, and yet he had personally experienced the pain of being excluded. And related then, number two, is that God, uh, God allows Saul to be excluded in order to make him more empathetic toward others. You know, later in his letter to the Galatians, Paul is going to tell the story of his having to confront the Apostle Peter, for excluding the Gentiles from his lunch table. This is basically a scene straight out of middle school. Um, the Gentiles weren't cool enough for Peter. And so Paul says, no, that is not the way of Jesus. There is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Nothing will make you fight for others' inclusion like your own exclusion. Because you know what it's like to be picked last. To not even be picked. You get on the sidelines. Thirdly, God let Saul be initially excluded in order to forge his friendship here with Barnabas. You know, if you only got one friend, how much do you value that friend? Right? Who sticks, Barnabas sticks up for Saul here vouches for him and eventually he convinces the other disciples to accept him as well and Saul loves him for it. 
Barnabas would become perhaps Paul's greatest friend and ministry partner, as we're going to see in the years and in the chapters to come. Not years together in Acts, but, uh, you know, it's, it's years that Acts chapters 10 through 28, you got it. So, what's the, what's the upshot for us? What's the takeaway for us this morning? Again, reading ourselves in here, here's what I think it means. You can take heart when you feel excluded brother, sister, because God may be paradoxically preparing you precisely for the very community that your heart so desperately longs for. You can take heart when you are rejected by those who you are trying to reach for the sake of Christ. God may just be humbling you so he can keep you utterly dependent on him, his power, his strength, not your own. You can take heart when you feel alone in life. You, you can remember that you're never truly alone. God may just be removing enough of those distractions for you to finally look to him instead, for you to finally be able to hear his voice instead, the one you really need to hear in your aloneness, your isolation, your solitude. And notice too this morning how the passage ends in verse 31. Not with loneliness, not with rejection, not with exclusion, but we read this, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Peace, edification, sanctification, comfort, growth. God blesses and he redeems our trials and he uses them and he uses us, a refined us, a purified us for the work of ministry. This is the work of ministry. It's our church's mission statement. Discipleship, community, and mission. Love God, love one another, love and serve the world. And God prepares us for it through trials. By ministering to us through our trials. This is the most important of all. Right here at the end, we are united with Christ in his suffering for us. The one who came and suffered for us. This is the gospel who suffered for us, who experienced solitude, isolation, exclusion, who ex experienced rejection for us so that we wouldn't have to. The one who, who, who prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, excluded me, ab abandoned me, so that we would never have to pray those words. Jesus. So where, where is God in our suffering? Jesus proves he's right there with us, ministering to us and through us. One day, through us, he's going to use that to minister to others as well. And so, if you are going through a tough time this morning, take heart, brother, sister. Perhaps God is just preparing you to use you in a mighty way for his own good purposes in the time to come.